we're not, but because we're trusting in Jesus, we're forgiven. What an awesome plan. We do love you. We praise you. We seek you right now and ask that you would help us, uh, teach us from your word, especially to fix our eyes on Jesus. You truly are everything to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3, page 652 in the Bibles that we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And today we're at this section I'm entitling Run the Race. So I thought it'd be a good idea to look at a runner. Let's watch this video. I love to run. It's what I do. It's what I am. People are always asking me, Blaine, tell me why you run all the time. My response is always the same. I run because I'm a runner. I haven't always been a runner. A couple years ago, I decided I'd give it a try. So I did what I saw other runners do. I joined the track team. quickly learn that just being on the track team doesn't make you a runner. I mean, I get out there and run my heart out, but I always seem to fear. Running straight isn't as easy as it looks. I was about to give up when I finally realized what was different about me. I was the only one wearing a watch. That's why I couldn't run. The watch was weighing me down. Though it was big and weighed a ton, I was kind of attached to my watch. Literally, couldn't get it off. I have tried before. I tried to pull it off, tear it off, cut it off. I tried many things. I finally just got used to it. I mean, yeah, it hindered my running, but people thought it was cool. I actually made friends because of it. We all have crossroads in life. This was mine. I realized I had a choice. Get rid of the watch somehow or get out of the race. At that moment, I made the decision. I chose to become a runner. Right then, I heard somebody say, Do you want me to take the watch off? This guy was standing next to me. Kind of freaked me out. I guess he knew what was going on. I told him I wanted to be a runner, but couldn't do it with my watch. He asked me again, do you want me to take off the watch? I said yes. He smiled and somehow managed to take it right off. My life since then has been all about running. I mean, I'm running now in a way I never thought I could before. I still stumble at times, but I never fall. I have a passion for running I never dreamed I would have. I owe a lot to that guy who freed me from my watch or shackles or whatever you want to call it. I sometimes wonder what he did with my watch. I do know this, what he did set me free. 
My name is Blaine. I'm a runner. read our passage, Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Are you a runner? You read something from John MacArthur's commentary on this passage. He says, Unfortunately, many people are not even in the race, and many Christians could hardly be described as running the race at all. Some are merely jogging. Some are walking slowly and some are sitting or even lying down. Yet the biblical standard for holy living is a race, not a morning constitutional. Race is the Greek agon from which we get agony. A race is not a thing of passive luxury but is demanding, sometimes grueling and agonizing and requires our utmost in self-discipline, determination and perseverance. While we are here on this planet, it's all about the race. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So how do we run the race well? That's what we want to look at in this passage. It describes it. In verse 1, first of all, we see to run the race well, we need to avoid obstacles. He says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. See, the large cloud of witnesses that he's referring to is he's pointing back to chapter 11. If you remember throughout chapter 11, we saw those great examples of faith in the Old Testament, all those Uh, people of faith. Now, when it says witnesses, it does not mean that they're looking down upon us. They're not looking down upon us. It means they are witnessing. Their testimony of faith is a witness to us as to how to run this race. So with their witness of faith, he says, let us lay aside every hindrance. The first obstacle he mentions here is The good. The good can actually hinder us from the best. Uh, Something that's good in and of itself might not necessarily help us in the race. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 24, and 25. Here we see another example where he uses this idea of the race. 
And he says, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. So we run the race to win the, the prize, the crown. Now, John MacArthur, again, uh, speaks on this. And he says, one of the greatest problems runners face is weight. Several years ago, the winner of a recent Olympic gold medal for the 100 meters came to our country for an invitational track meet. He was considered the world's fastest human being. But when he ran the preliminary heat, he did not even qualify. In an interview afterward, he said the reason was simple. He was overweight. He had trained too little and eaten too much. He had not gained a great amount of weight, but it was enough to keep him from winning, even from qualifying. Because of a few pounds, he was no longer a winner. In that particular race, he was not even qualified to compete. So in a literal race, that thing, which is not so bad, eating. Did you get a cookie? Okay, but what hinders that race? Well, this is the analogy of the race that we run. What is it in our lives that perhaps are keeping us from running this race of advancing the kingdom of God? Well, it says, let us lay aside every hindrance uh, uh, and and, uh, let us, uh, this idea of weight, um, it means, agkan, uh, it means encumbrance or impediment, anything that gets in the way and hinders the race. I'll give you another illustration of this. In Jules Verne's novel, The Mysterious Island, he tells of five men who escape a Civil War prison camp by hijacking a hot air balloon. As they rise into the air, they realize the wind is carrying them over the ocean. Watching their homeland disappear on the horizon, they wonder how much longer the balloon can stay aloft. As the hours pass and the surface of the ocean draws closer, the men decide they must cast overboard some of the weight, for they had no way to heat the air in the balloon." Shoes, overcoats, and weapons are reluctantly discarded, and the uncomfortable aviators feel their balloon rise, but only temporarily. Soon they find themselves dangerously close to the waves again, so they toss their food. Better to be high and hungry than drown on a full belly. Unfortunately, this too is only a temporary solution, and the craft again threatens to lower the men into the sea. One man has an idea. They can tie the ropes that hold the passenger car and sit on those ropes. Then they can cut away the basket beneath them. As they sever the very thing they have been standing on, it drops into the ocean and the balloon rises. Not a minute too soon, they spot land. Eager to stand on terra firma again, the five jump into the water and swim to the island. They live spared because they were able to discern the difference between what really was needed and what was not. 
the necessities they once thought they couldn't live without were the very weights that almost cost them their lives. The writer to the Hebrews says, let us throw off everything that hinders. Uh, And so we see even that which may be good, we have to discern as God is leading you to run the race he has for you to, to run. What are the things that might be getting in the way? Now that's the one, the first obstacle, but he mentions a second. He says, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Sin is the worst obstacle because it's, uh, the Bible says it ensnares us. I want you to look at Psalm 32 now, okay? This is a psalm of David that he is praying to the Lord for, uh, in repentance of his sin. And Psalm 32 actually brings out and uses three different Hebrew words for sin to really show just how bad sin is. And uh, so I want to read the whole psalm because it's a great prayer of repentance. He says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle for my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great flood waters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now here we see three major Hebrew words uh, for sin. Pesha, it means rebellion, revolt, or bringing a breach of relationship. A rebellion, a revolt, when we sin, we are committing high treason against God. It's like selling uh, nuclear bombs to ISIS in order to allow them to blow our country up. That's what sin is like. It's rebellion. It's revolt against God. Uh, Hata'ah is the second word. It means to sin or miss the mark. Um, This is the principal word for sin in the Old Testament, used 580 times. Very similar to the Greek word here in the book of Hebrews, hamartia. It means to miss the mark. Uh, you're aiming, but you're aiming wrong, okay? And then, uh, then, then aon is the third Hebrew word. It means to bend, twist, or distort. What we see from this is that sin is bad for us. It's not a good thing. 
Sin is what has wrecked the world. Uh, Sin is our enemy. Our passage says sin ensnares us. It's a trap. If you could imagine a, a giant pit covered over by some brush and you're on your race and you're running the race and you fall into the pit. It's a snare. It's a trap. Only you are culpable because you already know about the trap. (laughs) Okay? And you're thinking, if I already know the trap, why wouldn't I run around it? Yeah. (laughs) That's the question. It's because we're stupid. Sin makes us stupid, doesn't it? So we have to see this. This is what it says. Sin ensnares us. And then we finish this first verse. He he goes on. He says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. The race must be run with endurance. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, Once again, MacArthur, in his commentary, he says, the competition of the Christian life, of course, is different from that of an athletic race in two important ways. First, we are not to compete against other Christians, trying to outdo each other in righteousness, recognition, or accomplishments. Ours is not a race of works, but a race of faith. Yet we do not compete with each other even in faith. We compete by faith, but not with each other. Our competition is against Satan, his world system, and our own sinfulness, often referred to in the New Testament as the flesh. Second, our strength is not in ourselves, but in the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we could never endure. We're not called on to endure in ourselves, but in him. We don't try harder. We trust in the Holy Spirit, and he gives us the endurance. Whatever it is that we have to face in life, he helps us run the race. So to run the race well, first of all, we need to avoid the obstacles. Then our passage goes on, and we see to run the race well, we need Jesus. Verse 2. I love this verse. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. To run the race well, we need Jesus. The NIV says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Just be captivated by Jesus. He must become our whole world, our everything, the center of our universe. Are you mesmerized by Jesus? (laughs) I know you are. Don't you love Jesus? Oh, yeah. That's That's what we're talking about here. Mesmerized by Jesus, where you can't get enough of him. Do you deeply love Jesus more than yourself or anything else? Because that's what he calls us to. I want to show you a difficult passage in Scripture, one of those tough passages to understand at times. Look at Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. 
This is Jesus speaking, and he shocks his audience. It starts out by speaking of how there's large crowds beginning to follow him. And uh, in verse 25, it says, Now great crowds were traveling with him, so he turned and said to them. Now you got to get the picture here, okay? Large crowds are following him. And so you would think this is the way at least many within the religious realm think, okay? Church is getting bigger. Large crowds are coming. I better not say anything that will bother them because I want more and more and more. We want bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Okay, and you think that's what he's going to do. No, what does he say? He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that's a way to draw crowds. Okay, I mean, and uh, he does this more than once. If you follow through the Gospels, every time the crowd started getting big, he'd say something to, do, to really to bring about who's the true follower. And who isn't? Uh, So what is he saying here uh, when he says, if anyone does not, you got to hate your mom? (laughs) Now, we know from the Ten Commandments, you're supposed to honor your father and mother, right? And we're supposed to love everyone, even our enemies. So this clearly is not saying hate your mom. Okay. It is actually, we know this uh, from historical findings, it is a Semitic idiom for a fundamental preference. It's not hatred on an absolute scale, but on a, the fundamental preference, meaning, and this is only meaning, is that Jesus is first. Your love for him is the greatest. That's what he calls for, this kind of commitment, surrender, deep affection. Before I surrendered to Jesus, I dabbled in religion and made a mess of things. But I wasn't willing to give up my sin. I wanted to keep the watch on. I was proud of it. But one day, a day. I hope you remember that day when you said, I surrender all. No looking back. I have never, ever regretted it. Um, Fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus our passage says, is the source and perfecter of our faith. Uh, The pioneer is another way of translating that first verse, meaning he goes before us. And completer is another word for that second word. Uh, Pioneer and completer. Uh, He is the start starter and the finisher of our faith. He paved the way before us. He started us on our journey, our race, and he will help us finish. In dog racing, uh, have you ever been to a dog track? They have them down in Orlando. I never went, but we'd drive by it, you know. <laughs> okay. Um, but in the dog tracks, they would uh, put a rabbit in front of the dogs 
to get the dogs to run. So they're running after, it's actually a fake rabbit, but they're, they're running after this thing, and that's how they get them to run, okay? In the cartoons, they put a carrot in front of the rabbits, right? You've seen those cartoons? Yeah, okay. That's, uh, that's to get them going, okay? That's their, their motivation. Well, listen, Jesus is our incentive. He is our prize, the ultimate goal of life is that relationship with Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. The NIV translates it. Jesus won the race for us by going to the cross. And that's what he refers to by saying, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He won the race by going to the cross. In his trial, whoops, because I don't have a PowerPoint for this. In his trial, he focused on the future result for the joy set before him. He wasn't focused on the trial, on the pain that he was about to suffer. He was focusing beyond that on the joy that he was going to experience from the result of his death on the cross. So he was looking to that joy. He was thinking about us, knowing that his death would provide forgiveness for our sins so that we could enter into a personal relationship with him, that we could be united with him. That's what he was looking for. This, so he wasn't looking at the circumstance, at the difficulty, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. Um, John Piper, in his book... Uh, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. This is a marvelous book. I ordered some for our bookstore, so you'll have to look into it sometime. He says this, If a lifeguard saves you from the undertow of the Atlantic Ocean, you don't care if he's gloomy. Right? Who cares? He saved me. (laughs) It doesn't matter what his mental state is when you're hugging your family on the beach. But with the salvation of Jesus, things are very different. Jesus does not save us for our family, but for himself. If he is gloomy, our salvation will be sad, and that is no great salvation. Jesus himself and all that God is for us in him is our great reward, nothing less. I am the bread of life. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Salvation is not mainly the forgiveness of sins, but mainly the fellowship of Jesus. That's right. Forgiveness of sins is the essential thing that has to take place before the fellowship can happen, but the end result, the end goal is the fellowship of Jesus. Forgiveness uh, gets everything out of the way so that this can happen. But the glory and grace of Jesus is that he is and always will be indestructibly happy. I say it is his glory because gloom is not glorious. And I say it is his grace because the best thing he has to give us is his joy. Quote John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 
It would not be fully gracious of Jesus simply to increase my joy to its final limit and then leave me short of his. My capacities for joy are very confined. So Christ not only offers himself as the divine object of my joy, but pours his capacity for joy into me so that I can enjoy him with the very joy of God. This is glory and this is grace. It is not glorious to be gloomy. And if you're gloomy, put a smile on your face, okay? You, if you have Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, you have every reason to be gloomy, okay? But, but notice this. For his joy, he doesn't just want us to be happy. He wants to fill us with his capacity to be happy so that we can be happier. But it comes from the relationship with him, not all the stuff of the world. Right? So that's what he's saying. So for the joy set before him. Now his trial, whoops, I keep going back. I don't have a PowerPoint for this part. His trial was the cross. It was a shameful death, which is why it says despising the shame. Katafreneo is the Greek word there. It means to despise, disregard, or be unafraid of. He didn't care what he was going through because we were worth it to him. It was a painful death. The most excruciating part of it was when he experienced the very wrath of God and had to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because his death was a substitutionary death. He died in our place. He died paying the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. So he did that for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be united in fellowship with him. And then he finished the race and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Last thing he said was, it is finished meaning he accomplished everything that was necessary. That's why salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. It is not of works at all. Because if it's my works, if it's Jesus and me, my works, then that means his death on the cross wasn't sufficient. It wasn't good enough. But if it's completely and totally everything was done by him and he finished the race and sat down at the right hand of the Father, then we simply turn to him and put our trust in him. That's the gospel. So to run the race well, we need Jesus. And to run the race well, we can't give up. Verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give it up. In a marathon, it is easy to grow weary and lose heart if you don't look to the goal. The goal is Jesus. In a race, we sometimes catch a second wind. Have you heard of that phrase? Okay. Uh, You need to be filled with the Spirit of God and continue to be filled with the Spirit of God. A second wind, a third wind, a fourth wind. 
okay? That's how we continue on in the race. Now, this verse is very serious in the context. If you remember the whole book of Hebrews, he's writing this book to a group of Jewish believers who were considering, because of the persecution they were experiencing, considering walking away from Jesus and considering going back to Judaism. And he's warning them that to give up is to reveal that you're not a true believer. That's how serious this is. So we run the race and we don't give up. Once again, not in our own strength, but in the strength that God provides. I want to finish with, I found this, it's pretty funny, uh, an old letter I wrote in college. It's not a letter, it's just a, I don't know, a devotional thing that I was writing when I was pondering this passage way back. That was a long time ago, by the way. My favorite verse in the Bible is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This verse gives the answer to all the world's problems. To those who have not yet experienced salvation, this verse speaks of Christ's sacrifice for sin. To those who doubt God's love, this verse speaks of Christ's self-renunciation because he loved them. To those unsure of the final outcome of the world, this verse speaks of Christ's confidence in sitting down at the right hand of God. To Christians having difficulty living a life of holiness and joy, this verse points to the only solution. We must fix our eyes on Jesus. We cannot be satisfied with a mediocre life of sin. Christ came to save us from sin. We're no longer slaves to sin as long as we fix our eyes on Jesus. We must not be satisfied with a life of ho-hum, drab existence. Christ came so that we might be filled with unspeakable joy. This happiness comes when we fix our eyes on Jesus. We must not allow ourselves to fall into a state of worry and fear of the unknown. Christ came to be our peace and to fill us with peace that surpasses all understanding. All we need to do is fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I don't even remember writing that, but it is my handwriting. But I've believed that all my life since I turned to Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray.